Welcome to episode 52 of Breakout Culture. I'm Charlotte Metcalf and I'm the associate editor at Country and Townhouse magazine. And I'm Ed Vasey and I'm the culture editor of Country and Townhouse magazine. We're actually being very international today because Ed is talking to us from Turkey. So I'm especially grateful to him for tearing himself away from the sunshine to host this episode with me from rainy London. And I'm not being given the chance to answer back about why Charlotte is ruining my holiday. The artist Patrick Hughes is known as the inventor of reverse perspective. Many of our listeners will have seen his world-famous three-dimensional reverse perspective paintings, and those of you who have will know how mesmeric they are to move around in front of and watch them change. Patrick says he first became interested in perspective as a four-year-old in Birmingham during the war when he used to hide in the cupboard under the stairs during air raids and look at the upside-down stairs. It was this strange view of the stairs which made a strong impression on his psyche that he's made a career of doing things the other way round. Now, on the 29th of October, Hang Up Gallery in Hoxton is presenting The Perspective Paradox, a solo show of Patrick Hughes' work, celebrating 60 years since his first exhibition and 25 years of living and working in East London. We're delighted to have Patrick with us on the podcast. Good afternoon, Patrick. Thank you for having me. It's good to be here. Patrick, happy birthday. Why on earth are you spending it with us? (laughs) It's because I love the hang-up gallery and I'll do anything for them. Thanks for wishing me a happy birthday. 82 years and counting. Patrick, it's a massive honour to have you on the podcast with us because I'm going to say, I'm going to use this terrible phrase which will probably put your back up, but you're a cultural (laughs) icon. You're a cultural (laughs) icon ever since you fled Hull aged 17 and came to Mayfair. You've been in the Chelsea (laughs) Arts Club, you've been in the Colony Room, you've been in New York, you've been in Hackney, you famously called the East End Shoxton and Hordich. You've basically... (laughs) lived the swinging 60s, the 70s, the 80s. Just start talking. Tell us what it was like in the 60s, particularly when you started making your name. Some of it with your mother, Ed, with Marina. Oh, well, you, you better not talk about that. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I was, um, I was, as you say, I wanted to put it in a, another plug. I was at the Chelsea Hotel, so I was the Chelsea girl. I left the Chelsea Arts Club to move to the Chelsea Hotel and went and having lived in the Chelsea Arts Club to some extent, I went and lived in the Chelsea Hotel in New York for three or four years. I don't, I, um, since I was there, I don't li- really remember what it was like. <laughs> it, it was a, a special time. Yeah, I have, I have lived different lives, I suppose, since I'm so old, you're bound to live different lives. I've lived a life in St. Ives on Porthmere Beach. I've lived a life now in, uh, as you say, in Shoreditch and Hoxton. Uh, I've lived a, a variety of lives. I've lived, in a way, I began my life in a, in a miserable way because that, uh, that the life with my mother and father was very unpleasant and dull. And since then, I've tried to make it interesting and fun, shall we say, or intellectually stimulating. I was one of those families that didn't have any books at home and didn't have any real life at home they didn't like people to come in the house and so i lived in a way through the radio as we're doing now and but more in books i suppose i'm books are a little door that left me out of the terrible trite world the the suburban 
lower middle class world that I lived in into another world. Uh, like Lewis Carroll, through books, I got out of the world I was in and into this world I'm in now, you know, my, my own world. Well, I, I know, Patrick, you were represented for a long time by Angela Flowers, whom you met in 1970, and she asked you to be her very first artist, and you showed with Flowers till 2018. Now, interestingly, I interviewed Angela Flowers once and asked her how she chose which artist to represent, and she said it was very simple. She said an artist was someone who couldn't help themselves but simply had to paint every day. You only left Angela Flowers in 2018 after 48 years. So first, I'm wondering what made you decide to start afresh with a new gallery? And secondly, was Angela right? And do you paint every single day? And have you always done so? Um, there's, there's two or three questions there, Charlotte. Uh, first of all, I'm, uh, <laughs> leg I'm legally bound not to discuss why I left uh, Angela's oh. <laughs> gallery. Uh, second of all, no, I don't have to work every day. I'm I'm good at uh, taking time off, but somehow I I do th think every day. Think it, um, my my work is really about thinking, and I I have thoughts uh, at almost any time. And uh, it's actually easier to have thoughts when you're not on the job than when you are on the job. When you're on the job, you're just doing it. And uh, in discussions of creativity among scientists. They say, well, you do all the work, but that just when you're stepping on the omnibus is a favorite example, you have an idea. So when I'm, my most important gift, I suppose, is to get ideas and I, they come unannounced, they just uh, pop in. As to uh, how she chose me, she, my first wife, uh, bless her, she's gone now. Uh, she was uh, working at the ICA and Angela was working at the ICA and she gathered me up from the ICA which is, uh, as Ed would say, you know, another part of uh, really bohemian London. It was started by uh, Roland Penrose and ELT Messons, and it, it did always have that uh, spirit of uh, nonconformism. And my first exhibition in 61, I, I was almost going to have a show at the ICA in Dover Street, but I went around the corner to the Portal Gallery in Grafton Street when I was... Uh, a Mayfair maven. I want to ask Patrick about his rainbow paintings because I'm sorry to be, sound very venal about this, but you've sold a, a million rainbow postcards and 10,000 screen prints. They're a sort of iconic image, a very cheerful and pop artish. But of course, you said that they're an act of subversion. So tell us the story of the rainbow. Set the record straight. Well, um, yeah, they're not uh, obviously... Uh, deeply subversive. They're not an example of uh, anarchy. That's your second icon, by the way, Ed. You'll, be, you'll get a, a, a yellow card if there's a third icon. Yes, I suppose, to speak critically, let's say, Peter Blake, who's a, a, a better known pop artist than me, I suppose that his work uh, celebrates all the stuff of uh, Portobello Road, all the nostalgia, all that um, Union Jack stuff. That my rainbows don't do that. What I do with my rainbows, which are a colossal cliche, is to try to reinvent them. Uh, I've argued that, say, when Oscar Wilde said, uh, drink is the curse of the working classes, um, and uh, turned it around and said, work is the curse of the drinking classes, you, t you can take a cliche, as perhaps um, Ed, uh, Mr. Coon's, has done with the um, balloon dog, 
or where, which Lichtenstein does with the uh, comic strips or um, Damien Hirst really has done with the butterfly is to take the cliche and to revitalize it. So I took the sentimental cliche of the rainbow and I said, well, what if it came into a cell? It would go black. What if it hung out of your trousers? What if it was uh, seen askance from the side? What if it leaned up against the sky? What if it hung over the moon? So my hundred or so images of the, of the rainbow are a kind of attack on it, but a, a way perhaps to make a, a poetry of it, perhaps to, to hide it among the long grass and have uh, a spider uh, put its uh, web on it. And that, that would be graced with some uh, dew and uh, various uh, things like that. I, I really wanted to, uh, to mess with the rainbow, to, 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 to be bold enough to take something so uh, crass, if you like, that it's even been used as a sign for the National Sickness Service, but um, <laughs> you know, to, to, revit to revitalize it. I feel we could segue into quite an interesting political discussion, but I'm not going to divert Charlotte <laughs> from her question. <laughs> now, I was going to ask you about, about the, the, the new paintings that we're, we're going to see at Hang Up, because um, you've mainly done them in lockdown. But the exhibition is also going to include, I gather, some limited edition prints of some of your famous reverse perspective paintings. And because you made your first one called Sticking Out Room in 1964, but you've really come back to these three-dimensional paintings in the second part of your career. And I'm just wondering, for those listeners who might not know these paintings, can you describe them and tell us why you've returned to them? My first um, instinct, my first insight, was when I was on Hull Railway Station in 1963, and I saw that the railway line came to a point. And I thought, oh, that's interesting. I'll make a railway line that comes to a point. So I made one and, sh and showed it in... Uh, 63 of the Grafton, uh, Grafton Street Gallery, Portland Gallery. And it was on the floor. It was really like a tank trap. You used to trip over it. But then, of course, when you walk around it, you would be at the infinite, at God's end, really, the infinite vanishing point end. And I, I looked at it from that end, and I thought, oh, I'll make a room like that that sticks out, that is oppressive, that doesn't follow the rules, which is about receding. But let's make it an stick it out like a, a mountain, if you like, or a pyramid with its top cut off. And I made that flat on the table, like the man in Close Encounters of the Third Kind, who made that big monster of clay on his uh, kitchen table. But I made it out of wood and hung it on the wall. And then to my surprise, I was so naive, it disappeared, it went backwards, because we know what perspective tells us that in the distance, things get smaller. And my uh, small end, seemed to disappear um, and go into the distance. So that was a great insight. But my a grave error was I thought, oh, I've had that idea. Let's have another idea. And I had some other ideas, uh, various kinds of delightful ideas, but they were never as good as that one. And so, as you say, Charlotte, I've reverted to it in the last uh, 20 or 30 years. And one of the beauties of it, of course, is that because of what we, the observer, knows, it begins to move and turn and twist and uh, calibrate itself, dance with you according to your own movements. It really does. It really, really does. I mean, I can absolutely oh, test yeah. to that. Yeah, well, 
it, it doesn't show very well on radio, does it, or on? Uh, no, sadly, on, uh, I know. That's why no. I'm asking you to describe. It is hard to describe, but from a theoretical point of view, the great uh, art theorist of the 20th century, Marcel Duchamp, said, "Well, artists just do half the work, and the viewer does the other half of the work." And I'm proud to say that in my work, it is entirely true. I just make these wooden structures that are painted and then people come along and by their movement and by their through their eyes and in particular their feet ankles knees and uh, ass they move about <laughs> in front of them and make them make them alive in the sense that they're moving happily my work comes to life which is a an artist's dream really i suppose uh, for instance, Jackson Pollock, when he dribbled the paint on the floor, as they used to do in 19th century farmhouses in, uh, in America to um, enable the spots not to show, dirt, not, doesn't, dirt doesn't show on a dribbled floor. Jackson Pollock took that particular cliche and, and was, it was alive when he did it, but when it hangs on the wall, in a sense, the dribbles have died, haven't they? They've been dribbled. They're no longer dribbling. And I think my work, having been uh, manufactured, then does continue to, to work and, and move. That's what mm. I want to do, to move you. Well, it's the perfect segue to say people have to move their arse to Hoxton. <laughs> to Hoxton, uh, where your show opens on the 29th of October, The Perspectives Paradox, and they've got to move their arse there because it's on until mid-December only. And also on 25th of November, you're going to be in conversation with our mutual friend Rosie Millard uh, at the gallery, former BBC Arts correspondent. Uh, and you can book for that on the website. So that is fantastic, Patrick. Thanks so much. I've, it's been a wonderful and fascinating uh, conversation. And I promise when we have you back on again, I will not use the I word. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks very much, Ed. It's been great. Did you, by the way, her. did you go back to Hull for the City of Culture or did you, when you got on that train leaving Hull, say never again? It's, it's difficult to go back. There, I think in life itself, it, it's best to go forward. Oh, well, Thanks, thank Patrick. you, Patrick. It's absolutely fascinating. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Goodbye. Many of you will have formed a strong picture of George III, either as a cruel but hilariously camp-prancing sadist in Hamilton, or as the sad lunatic in Alan Bennett's play The Madness of King George III. But now there is a new biography, which is going to turn all ideas about him on their heads. George III, The Life and Reign of Britain's Most Misunderstood Monarch, is indeed a biography. It's not a musical. It is the latest book from our great and multiple award-winning biographer and historian Andrew Roberts. The Sunday Times called Andrew's last book, Churchill, Walking with Destiny, undoubtedly the best single-volume life of Churchill ever written. And be in no doubt that his book on George III is radically going to change the way we view Britain's longest reigning king. We're delighted to have Andrew here on our podcast. Hello, Andrew. Hello, uh, Ed. Thank you. And hello, Charlotte. Very, very nice to be on the show. 
even if I'm the 61st person that you've had on this wonderful show. <laughs> and more, I think. But it's great to have you with us <laughs> and such a meaty subject to get our teeth into. So let's start by what we know of George III himself. What's so shocking is that there's only been one biography of him in the last half century. And most of our assumptions that he was a cruel tyrant who lost us American went bonkers are based on speculation and drama rather than fact. So can you start by summing up the four major misunderstandings about him that represent the starting point for the book? Well, you've already mentioned one of them. Um, it's assumed that he went mad from porphyria. And because he uh, was mad from Porphyria and because he was obstinate, we lost the American colonies and we deserved to lose them anyhow because he was a tyrant. There you are. There are four things and uh, there are all three, all four of them wrong. <laughs> so what's the truth, Andrew? Well, he didn't have Porphyria. Um, he, that comes as a result of a mother and son um, combination who uh, some doctors in the 1960s who gave completely misleading evidence uh, and symptoms to uh, some doctors who who came up with this porphyria diagnosis which can't be continued with owing to the fact that it was uh, all a bit fraudulent. I'm afraid quite a lot of this, I don't know whether your listeners are going to like this, but it's largely to do with the colour of urine and faeces. But uh, porphyria <laughs> gives you some um, sort of reddish, bluish, purpley kind of um, urine and faeces. And it turns out this, this came from actually beetroot and uh, aloes and gentium and various other medicines he was taking, not from the fact that he had porphyria, because he didn't. He actually had um, the bipolar um, disorder part of um, manic depression. That's the first thing. Second thing was, he wasn't obstinate. He was, he was a constitutional monarch. He went along with what the, uh, what the Prime Minister, the, um, the Cabinet and the House of Commons and the House of Lords wanted with regard to America, which was to fight. There wasn't uh, any uh, country in the world that wouldn't have fought for its colonies by, um, by 1776. And he wasn't responsible either for the situation we got into before, largely uh, for the same reason. And he certainly wasn't a tyrant. Um, or this completely ridiculous figure in Hamilton the Musical. He was actually a, a um, good-natured, enlightened, charming, intelligent, cultured man who was quite understandably turned into a tyrant by um, the Declaration of Independence because it was a wartime propaganda document. What do the mother and son team, have they read your book and, and have they furiously reacted to it? No, fortunately they're dead and therefore can't sue oh. for libel, <laughs> um, which, they, <laughs> which they almost definitely would do were they alive and if they read the appendix, which points out uh, quite how sneaky and and, uh, and, and naughty they've been over the evidence. But you've also had the opportunity, I mean, I think what makes your book unique and gives it the, you know, gives you the opportunity to reset uh, George III is your access to the Georgian papers. These are archives that Her Majesty allowed to be put online, I think, five or six years ago. 100,000 pages of new material that you've got your hands on. That's right, yeah. That's the key point of, about why this book was worth writing, really. Um, the uh, the Georgian pa Papers programme is a fantastic, truly wonderful thing that King's College London has been doing in alliance with the Royal Archives, where they've been putting up on the... Um, on the net, 100,000 pages of his private papers, a part of the 200,000 papers of the whole of the Georgian 
um, all of the Hanoverian monarchs. So it's uh, it's an extraordinary sort of avalanche of new information, and we can get all sorts of things from this, both what's there and what's not. You'd expect, if he was a tyrant, that there would be some kind of plans to establish a, a, a tyranny in America, but um, there's nothing like that at all. And instead, we get amazing stuff about his his opposition to the slave trade, for example, and to slavery, which uh, he felt very strongly about in um, when he was Prince of Wales in the 1750s. And uh, this has come as quite a surprise to people, because up until now, of course, he's considered to have been uh, anti-abolition. But he wasn't. But his statue is safe. This is the key point. <laughs> well, this is what I, yeah, this is what I hope it is. I mean, um, I hope it is. I, you never know because there might be some other thing that he, he actually, he was quite, he was quite um, liberal minded when it came to um, uh, homosexuality as well, which is very unusual amongst the Hanoverians in particular, but, you know, 18th century people in general. Did he write about homosexuality? No, he didn't. But what he did was um, when... Um, when a well-known, in fact, on two occasions, when well-known uh, what were then called sodomites rather than homosexuals because people concentrated on what you actually did rather than I- identity of the people, um, it was, um, he, uh, he, he continued to see their plays, he continued to, to sort of make public support for them, which, is, which w- he certainly wouldn't have done if he was a bigot. And he was also very uxorious. He was married to one woman, Queen Charlotte. He had 15 children and um queen charlotte is obviously now now a massively important figure in our lives because of bridgerton Uh, (laughs) yes yes she was uh she was not the lady i'm sorry to to break your heart here ed but she was not the lady that you see in bridgerton she was a rather demure um character it's quite an extraordinary love story really because they got married six hours after they met no and yeah and um which obviously you know even for the 18th century is is a pretty tight schedule there um and uh it was taken for granted that he would have mistresses like his, um, like the whole of the rest of his family. He's the only Hanoverian monarch who, who was faithful to his wife. But instead, he fell in love with his wife, and um, it was only when he he went mad um, for the penultimate time in eighteen o four that uh, they they were no longer able to sleep together. Well, yeah, they had a massive um, cultural legacy, didn't they? I mean, the Royal Academy, all sorts of things. Completely extraordinary. Yeah, fantastic. And they very much did this together. The Royal Academy, as you mentioned, uh, was set up by George III. Um, The Royal Collection, half of the Queen's paintings, the largest art collection in private hands in the world, uh, was bought by him. The British Library, of course. When you go to that wonderful uh, um, five-storey glass thing in the middle of the, the nucleus of the British Library... It's it's George III's library. The Science Museum, if you go up on the second floor of the Science Museum, you'll see part of the largest, the world's largest collection of scientific instruments which he set up. He was fascinated by science. He, the planet Uranus was named after him. And, uh, he, of course, architecture, the Georgian architects, the great architects like Sloan and... and um, Wyatt and Adam and Chambers, all of these people were patronised by him. Uh, and he was also fascinated by and loved music. And Handel said that, that well, that boy lives, uh, my uh, music will never go unplayed. So he was, a, he was a great guy when it came to culture, he really was. He sounds uh, wonderful. I mean, where is his statue at the moment? 
Uh, well, there are a couple of them. There's one in Windsor Great Park and there's one in, Cold, in um, Coxpur Street. I mean, going back to the War of um, Independence for a minute, I read somewhere a really interesting thing you said, that if you could say something to him today, you'd ask him why he never actually went to America and you think this could have ended in a different result because you said that he hardly ever left the home counties, which for somebody so cultured and curious, obviously, as he was, this is rather strange. Yes, it is. He showed no intellectual curiosity when it came to um, to himself and travel. He was Elector of Hanover. He never went to Hanover. He was King of Ireland and Scotland, never went there anywhere. He never went north of Worcester <laughs> and um, or west of Plymouth. And he had this... Uh, he, had, he was obviously happy enough. He had a, a topographical map collection of 40,000 maps, which... Um, and he was obviously... You know, felt that that was enough. Yeah, no, fascinating. Uh, I think somebody's got to write a musical about George III now. I think you're the man, Andrew. <laughs> Got to rehabilitate him. In which ha- Hamilton's the baddie? How about that? Yes, yes, exactly. <laughs> or, or a Robert Harris counterfactual where George III becomes King of America. Well, actually, ah. Prince Charles came up with that um, with that idea because uh, Prince Charles definitely thinks that had George gone out there and uh, and people had seen the advantages of a uh, of a constitutional monarch that um, that maybe we might not have lost the colonies. But I do feel that slightly something was going to happen later on. I mean, it might have been that we had to fight a war of secession away from America if if the balance of power had slipped over to America, which by the 1870s, 1880s, it almost certainly would have done. And that's not even to take into account the uh, the problem that Britain, of course, did not have slavery and America did. Yes, true. Very, very, God, amazing. Fantastic. Andrew, that's so marvellous. It's amazing. So I, you know, I see so many parties around town and yet you churn out these incredible books. Scholarly, churn is the wrong word to use, obviously. You produce these incredible <laughs> helpful, yeah. scholarly that books. That does sound like... Uh, which win, like a... <laughs> win awards like Lord Salisbury and uh, Churchill and now George III will know that. How do you balance this life i couldn't sit still and alone for eight hours in a library but you presumably that's most of your life yes and it's actually the bit i enjoy more um really than the (laughs) publicizing side of it there's nothing more exciting than coming across um papers that you know haven't been looked at for 50 years and and trying to reinterpret them it's a uh, it's a great pleasure. I I do get up early in the morning. I start work at about four thirty or five o'clock every morning. Good lord! So that Having does, been to a party um, the night before. Yes, but I do also <laughs> have a Churchillian nap for forty five minutes every afternoon of my oh. life. So it um, I, I I get I have two, sort of two separate bits of the day, as it were, and I find that I get much more work done uh, that way because people don't sort of bother you in the mornings uh, before nine a.m. much. Uh, listeners, you can't see, but um, Ed and I are lucky enough to be on a Zoom with Andrew and we can see his amazing study, which is full of extraordinary things. Yeah, look, can I, can I show you one thing I've got? Are you, are you looking at this, uh, Ed? Yes, that, yes. That is a, I know this isn't going to work yeah, that's really well George. on the podcast. That's, 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 that's that George is, That is a maquette of George III walking along uh, in his Windsor uniform, which was a Windsor a uniform that he invented in 1777, which the royals still wear at Windsor when they're staying at Windsor today. So you said that you started collecting Churchill memorabilia when you were 14. Not just uh, Churchill, but um, I've got I've got all lots of bits and pieces um, around. Yes, they uh, it it it. I try and get things that uh, the actual subjects of my book have have touched. You know, have been 
close to. And uh, so I don't know, it sort of brings you a bit closer to them when you're spending, in Napoleon's case, six years of your life, or Salisbury took me six years. Some other um, books have taken me that kind of length of time. And uh, and it's nice to get close to people, <laughs> if you see what I mean. I'm not alone in this. <laughs> Antonia uh, Fraser, when she writes um, books, she surrounds herself with pictures of uh, of the people she's writing about. And you always knew you wanted to be a historian? No, I, I went into the city when I um, left Cambridge and um, I was there for a, a year or two until I discovered I was functionally innumerate. And um, <laughs> oh. that, caused, that caused a little bit of a problem there. But they were very nice to me there. But ultimately, it was quite clear that uh, it wasn't doing them or me any good. Well, the book is absolutely wonderful. It looks wonderful as well. It's got a great cover. I know, and the end papers are beautiful and the illustrations are beautiful. I think that um, Penguin have done a fantastic uh, job with all of that. You're completely reinventing him, really, which is very exciting. I talk about his courage because uh, he, he survived six assassination attempts. Um, he was great during the invasion attempts in, against, uh, against Britain, very brave during the Gordon riots. He had leeches put on his eyeballs um, at one point during uh, his... Um, during his madness, which was, uh, I mean, he was treated, he was uh, treated abominably when he was mad. He was um, put in a straight jacket and attached to a chair for days on end and gagged and really, you know, thank God we've destigmatized mental illness in this mm. country now because you can write a book in which George III is not blamed for his own mental illness, like the 19th century books by the Whig historians. In the 1950s, that um, uh, Sir Lewis Namia said that George had gone mad because he was forced to make love so often to his hideous wife. Oh. I mean, people could write that kind of rubbish, but, you know, only 50 years ago. But are you going to do a TV documentary to accompany the book? I wish. Why aren't people interested? Why isn't an American company coming to me and saying, hang on, you're saying something completely different about the last king of America? Well, you never know after they've listened to this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Well, Well, and also, I mean, with any luck, you go to a few of the battlefields because in 45% of cases where the American War of Independence is war-gamed, it is... Uh, the British who win. We won more battles in the American Civil War than the Americans did. And so that would be quite fun. We go to St. Uh, St. James's Palace where he met J- John Adams after the, um, f- long after the, the war had been lost. And he was very um, uh, open and friendly and good natured to him and said, we wanted to be the first to meet the friendship of the United States as an independent power. Wonderful thing to say, you know, uh, considering how much. And he said of George Washington, he was the greatest character of the age. Yeah, this is a man who's taken 13 colonies off him. He was a big-hearted bloke, you know. But no, when you look at this chap, um, so many of the things that he gave, the modern monarchy, I think, derives much more from him than from from Queen Victoria. Um, with the coaches and the Buckingham Palace and the trooping of the colour and walkabouts and all of that kind of thing. They're all buried at at uh, Windsor. He was the first one since Charles I to be. So yeah, I think we've got a lot to thank him for. Oh, what a great note to end on. Thank you so much, Andrew. That's absolutely fascinating. Thank you, Charlotte. Thanks, Eddie. Really enjoyed it. That's all we've got time for this week, but do please keep listening and don't forget to visit our website, which is, you don't need reminding, do you? countryandtownhouse.co.uk because you know what this week on Tuesday we are launching a very special edition of Great British Brands Zero which is a call to arms to the luxury industry to cut their emissions and sign up to the international campaign Race to Zero 
We are indeed launching on Tuesday, Ed, and I am the editor of Great British Brand Zero, so I'm seriously excited about its launch in time for COP26, the Climate Change Conference in Glasgow. I spent the last year and more talking to 26 luxury leaders about how they're changing the way they do business, and it's been absolutely fascinating. And if any of them are listening, I'm seriously looking forward to seeing you at the launch on Tuesday, and I hope you're coming too, Ed. Wild horses wouldn't keep me away. 